Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. 666 points lost on Friday. Almost that today. We busted below that 50-day moving average. We're breaking all kinds of different technical levels. Quite a drop happening on Wall Street. A massive sell-off is happening today. Moments ago, we were down more than 900 points. What's going on with the mechanics of this is market this and the sell-off? just machines gone wild? The Dow down over 4%. The S&P 500 lower by 3.7%. This pretty much is about religion from central banks gone awry. They built it up. Opportunities come when the market breaks. And the market just broke again. We haven't seen it break in a long time. Look, we overshot to the upside, as everybody was talking about. Yes. And this is clearly, at least on a short-term basis, an overshoot Mike, to the downside. The- Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It's time to panic. Ah, the market. What are we going to do? I just wanted to play that for you because all of a sudden, we had a respite from Russia collusion memo gates. We, we had a, a respite. We had a little bit of a pause, didn't we? I mean, it was a shame that our 401ks were getting shellacked. Um, and those of you who actually are fortunate enough to be among the, I think the what uh, the percentage of Americans who own stock other than their 401k is like 20%. I might be way off on that one. Mike, let me know if I'm way off on that. I think like 20% of Americans actually invest the stock market. But it has effects in the broader economy. And let me say this. We're about to move from the whole market discussion, by the way. I do not pretend to be a markets guy on radio. Don't worry. I just the Dow was down 1175 today, which is the single biggest one day drop in history. So everyone's like, now, if this were to continue, if the sell off were a sign of a recession or fears of inflation were to overtake the economy in in bigger ways. Just understand it's it's the the narrative about Russia, Trump collusion. And this is why I want to play this for you right away. I I think this is not going to last that long. Yeah, there's. Markets go up, markets go down, right? I don't think this is necessarily the beginning of anything really bad. But just know that I'm saying this to you my, with my predictive powers such as they are. If we enter a rocky period here of uh, all of a sudden a couple of months of bad jobs numbers, inflation starts creeping up beyond. I think inflation they usually want at about 2%. That's what the, the Fed, which as you all know is like not really the government, but in some ways more powerful than the government, uh, the Fed wants a 2% inflation rate because that's what growth, that's what they think is good for growth, so that's what they want the money supply to be. Uh, but if it gets worse than that or if it starts to get, like, problematic for whatever reason, they're going to blame it on Trump. That's the bottom. That's what I'm trying to say. And all of a sudden, all the Russia stuff is going to be back burner because th- that's what they have to go with when they've got Trump getting it done, deregulating, economy going well, jobs, everything, everything's cooking and rolling along. That's when you got to hear Russia, Russia, Russia. But if things get a little rocky, and I don't even think, in the worst case scenario, I think Trump would be, uh, I think the policies of the administration will be significantly helpful to whatever's going on. But 
you're just going to see. I just want to prepare you for that. There will be a whole, oh, Trump, he doesn't have this financial acumen. He's not the deal maker. They'll, the storyline will change, which is just my way of illustrating for all of you. This is all a construct. Remember one of my, one of my uh, Buck Sexton show first principles. The news cycle is a construct. It is made for you. It is curated. It is pulled together. It is propagandized by an enormous multi-billion dollar apparatus of people who are paid money to feed an audience, in many cases, whatever it wants to hear, but also in general just information, and is competing with other outlets to that end, right? That's, that's what news is. Uh, news is not really anything more sophisticated than that, although there's a lot of room for shenanigans just in that pretty simple and straightforward mission statement. But yeah, had a big drop in the Dow today. All right, fine. I think everything's going to be okay. But just note that they're going to blame. You'll see some stories blaming Trump tomorrow if you look around. Some of the left-wing sites, they'll go for it right away. A week ago, they were saying Trump isn't responsible for the booming economy. Some will get a little ahead of their skis on this and go, oh, Trump is, Trump is bad because of the economy. Had a couple of bad days. Look what the market is. You know, the same people who were telling you like a month ago, don't give Trump credit for the economy because of deregulation and tax cuts are now going to be saying, oh, Trump's response. So they have no credibility, no integrity. I just wanted you to hear it from me first here. OK, now let's get into what we do. Now I got to sort of crack the knuckles and get ready to talk about uh, national security stuff and all the things going on with the memo, because uh, there's a lot here. Right. The, the fallout from the memo has been its own series of debates and discussions as i told you the memo did not end any story it is in fact just an important phase an important part of the much larger story here about what happened with the trump administration and the stakes are no longer and have not been for a while just about whether or not donald trump colluded it is now very much simultaneously a story about whether or not the FBI, the DOJ, the Hillary campaign, and the media colluded against Trump. And when you look on balance right now, there's a whole lot more information to suggest that the second thing is true than the first. (laughs) In fact, there's really nothing on the first one. There's a whole lot of stuff on the second one, which is what we're going to spend some time on today. Uh, But you had former... Senior CIA official Phil Mudd, whom I, I've uh, I've met Phil before. Um, this is not a personal thing. This is a this is a my thoughts on his analysis thing, and I think his analysis, at least on this issue, uh, is poor beyond poor beyond belief. Almost, it's as though he's saying what he thinks he needs to say to get paid a certain amount by CNN. That is how I feel about it. I'm. And I'm going to talk more about this other FBI guy, I would note, who's Mr. Oh, I have to resign on principle. And then he goes and gets a job at CNN right away. Oh, what a shock. Oh, who could know such a thing, right? But we have to talk first about this point made by Mudd because he is probably, well, they have Clapper over there, too. You'll notice all these former nonpartisan, so they say, senior intelligence, you know, directors and agency heads, they run over to these left-wing networks and become attack dogs. Hmm. If we were to work back from this, don't we think it's also very likely that the Clappers, the Brennans, the 
muds, perhaps, that we see now were the same individuals with the same political and partisan proclivities before? Doesn't that also make us think that perhaps after eight years of Obama and a Hillary secretary of state and everything and the expectations of Hillary to become president, that some of these very powerful folks who are no longer in government, who are rabid partisans now that they're outside of government, and I just named some, right? Clapper, Brennan, etc. Don't we think it stands to reason that maybe they were just the same way, but not public about it when they were inside of government? Oh, ooh, look at us putting two and two together here in the Freedom Hut, because that's how we roll. But a very important issue was raised by uh, Mr. Mudd. And as I said, it's not personal. I have nothing personally against Phil Mudd. I'm sure he's a really nice, smart guy, but I don't like what he's been saying on CNN recently. So here is the statement. The president's talking about basically corruption at the FBI today, but we oppose the leadership. The workforce is going to look at this and say, this is an attack on our ability to conduct an investigation with integrity. There's hundreds of agents and analysts working on this investigation. It's not just Christopher Ray, the FBI director. So the FBI people, I'm going to tell you, are ticked. And they're going to be saying, I guarantee it, you think you can push us off this because you can try to intimidate the director? You better think again, Mr. President. You've been around for 13 months. We've been around since 1908. I know how this game is going to be played. We're going to win. So what he's a senior, a former senior uh, bureaucrat. And what he's and I say that as a as a junior, n- nobody, former bureaucrat. Uh, but what he's saying is, f- from what I can hear and see, is he's outlining the very deep state problem we're talking about. It is unacceptable for people inside the FBI or any any federal bureaucracy with specific and delineated powers and authority. It is unacceptable for them to play gotcha based on politics. And this is something that I think a lot of people have lost sight of recently. It is unacceptable for anyone in the intelligence community to say, I don't like what Trump said about us, so I'm going to get him. Maybe I'm going to leak some stuff to the media that harms the administration, which is also a crime, by the way. But it is unethical to do that. You do your job. You're supposed to be civil servants serving the public and the public interest. This is not about egos at the FBI, at the CIA, at any place in the intelligence community. And I think we've started to see the mask drop here a little bit because people that, whether they want to admit it or not, have some previous experience of this and understand that there are political games that are played inside the federal bureaucracy are coming out and saying, yeah, that's right, FBI is going to win this one. Oh, I'm sorry, what, what does that mean? They're going to win this one. Shouldn't the FBI be... Doing justice? The FBI is a subsidiary of the Department of Justice, which, by the way, works for the executive branch. We seem to have been convinced of something else recently by a media that wants to pretend now that the DOJ, the FBI, and all these different prosecutors and glorified lawyers therein are above the government that actually gives them their authority. They are separate. They're like a super government unto themselves. Executive, legislative, judiciary. They are part of the executive. They are not a fourth branch of government. They seem to think that they are. And this is not new. And I'm singling out the statement from Mudd on CNN because it's the most recent one that I've seen. 
But you get plenty of people say, you know, oh, if you pick a fight with the IC, the IC is going to get you. The IC serves at the pleasure of the president. The IC is supposed to provide him with the best information they can. The FBI and the Department of Justice are supposed to help the president in the execution of laws. They are not there as a as a uh, a stopgap on, oh, we don't like his policies, hashtag resist. We're all quite aware of the fact that we are a few bad days away, perhaps, who knows, from a military exchange with North Korea, which is a crazy regime that does have nukes. We've got very serious problems in the world. The fact that you have now bureaucrats who have taken into their hands the authority given to them by, it's not clear to me who, They've just taken it for themselves. They have usurped power that is not theirs to try and even the score with the president. You'll notice that the president isn't picking any fights with the rank and file at the FBI. The president isn't running around saying that he's going to, you know, raise the FBI building to the ground, that he's going to uh, uh, eliminate all rivals from within the DOJ. He's pushing back against a narrative that increasingly looks shaky. And I will say this. People at the DOJ and FBI lied to you. They lied to you about how sensitive the information in this memo was. Full stop. They didn't misunderstand. They did, this isn't a gray area. They lied their butts off. And so now there are some people that are they're a little sore about the whole situation. And you get people running around saying, oh, some folks at the FBI are going to get even. You know, the FBI agent right now who's doing his work in in Nebraska or Arizona or Florida who's trying to help somebody, you know, deal with the cartels in their area or trying to track down white-collar criminals who have stolen grandma's life savings or whatever, doesn't really care what people say about Jim Comey. This is all a lie. This is, again, part of my The Media Conjures creates this narrative and then force-feeds it to you. And I'm not just speaking about this as somebody who's in the media. I've got lots of friends who are still inside the community, as it's called. Real friends. Not like, hey, you know, like I met you once at a, at a mixer for like the press and people that work for the DOJ or whatever. I got close buddies in there. They're not all running around like, oh, what are we going to do? Trump said mean things about us. What does it say about our federal prosecutors, our federal law enforcement and, and intelligence folks, that their feelings about the president are supposed to influence their work. I think that's absolutely appalling. And I also think that it's a pretty good description of the very deep state phenomenon that others are always mocking. Oh, there's no such thing as a deep state. Okay, well, it's an American deep state. It's different than the Turkish Darren Devlet, which I could tell you about another time, which is an actual super state within the state that can override democratic elections and has many times throughout the 20th century. I'm not saying that's what we have. Well, we got something that's kind of like an American version of it, don't we? That's what it feels like right now. So maybe it's the American deep state and we need to root it out and deal with it. And as you can see, my friends, I am just getting started here. So stay with me. We'll be right back. The only thing I fear from this memo, because I think it's really been a huge dud. All right. I think everybody knows it was kind of a dud. Some White House officials fear that the Nunes memo is a complete dud. And it's a big dud. A complete dud. This looks like a dud. It's a dud. This memo with regards to the Mueller probe 
is a dud. The reviews are in. And Congressman Nunez's memo was a dud. <laughs> Notice how all these different left-wing pundits, it's almost like they got a, an email that says, this is what you say about the memo. Make sure you use the word dud a lot. The memo is such a dud, yet the FBI fought its release for months. Some of these exact same people that I just played for you with It's a Dud, uh, they were saying that it shouldn't be released because of, it was so sensitive. That was a complete lie, as I've told you, and a really bothersome one, uh, one that we should not forget anytime soon. But it's, it's a dud, huh? Maybe you could say it's a dud insofar as it's not a lot of particularly new information, but it is confirmation of what has been reported that any time some of us would say, well, hold on a second, looks like the dossier was used for Fusion GPS. I remember a few months ago, oh, that's ridiculous. It's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory. Well, now we know it wasn't a conspiracy theory. Now we know it is the truth. So it wasn't the most groundbreaking information to have ever been reported because we had heard that this was the case. I, as you know, predicted pretty much all of what was in the memo. But now we know it's now we know it's true. So now we can move forward. And hopefully when the idiot squad over at the MS, the M, the MSNBC, MSNBC and CNN, when they try to say things like, oh, you know, who knows of the dossier? Well, now we know. Now, in fact, we, we do know. And the notion that the memo is a dud is just just goes to show you how dishonest many of the people who have involved themselves in this debate and this discussion really are. I would also note that there's a Democrat memo that's supposed to come out. Hmm, hold on a second. If the Republican memo was a, quote, dud, why would the Democrats even waste their time with their own memo? Here's a little prediction. Some of those same people that you heard saying the Republican memo is a dud are going to come out and say, the Democrat memo is a fly kick to the face of the Republican narrative. The Democrat, ne- the Democrat memo has body slammed the Republican. I mean, you know, they're just, just idiot, dishonest partisans all over the place. But I've got a breaking news for you, actually, on that Democrat memo. Literally just broke while we were on air. I will tell you what it is after this break. Which is coming up in one minute. I got a little excited there. I know. See, I kept people off. <laughs> I kept people on the seat of their pants. I just missed my clock there, folks, for a second. That's all that happened there. But see, now, I've, now that I was going to give you the tea, I can't tell you exactly what happened. Let me just say this, though. The Democrat memo is going to be no new factual information. It is just going to be a recitation of the talking points that are already being used by all these different Democrat talking heads. It is going to be the manifestation of the media's concerted opposition to getting to the truth about the Carter Page surveillance and the FISA abuse and everything else that's happened here. What is the status of that memo? Ah, the Democrat memo that is to respond to last week's? I shall tell you about that one. Here we go, this time. After this break. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. They have damaged uh, the relationship between our committee and the intelligence community. 
Uh, in the future, the intelligence community is going to be very wary about sharing information with us because they won't trust us to be responsible stewards of it. Uh, and sources of information are going to dry up. If you have a neighbor next door who's buying a lot of fertilizer uh, and it seems odd to you because they don't have a yard, uh, are you going to think twice before calling the FBI? Your identity is going to be revealed. Hmm. Um, because you really can't trust that this is going to be kept confidential anymore. The process presumed that the President of the United States, who has a veto over this, would be a responsible person who would have the interest of the nation at heart. And, of course, that's not what we have here. That's House member Adam Schiff, who is a grotesque liar. So let's just start with that. The notion that the intelligence community may now feel weird about sharing information with Congress is irrelevant. The intelligence community is not some separate part of the government. Congress has oversight of what the intelligence community is doing. You know, the left used to know this. You know, that they have many times in the past conveniently beat up on the CIA and all kinds of agencies and organizations because it was politically convenient for Democrats to do so. Now, all of a sudden, it's, oh, what are we going to do? They're not going to share information. Tough. If Congress wants information from the intelligence community, Congress gets it. This is what some in the media don't seem to understand. There is no cutout. There is no... And then they can say, oh, well, if, if it's executive branch information, they don't have to share it. Okay. Well, either Congress gets it or the president gets it and can release it through the processes in place, that's it. They're just, we're just acting like they can't understand these pretty straightforward separation of power issues, uh, powers issues, because this is part of the narrative. They're just hoping to confuse people and running with these storylines that they think sound good, but in reality are just crap. They cannot withstand a minute's actual scrutiny. Lies. Schiff is a liar. Not a, I've called him a used ShamWow salesman, and I feel like ShamWow salesmen out there are getting a rough, getting a raw deal. The used ShamWow salesman. Because, you know, at least that's a product with some, you know, I don't, I don't know how good it is. I've never tried one. Is it good? Does it work? I don't know. It's like soaks up all the stuff, right? You know, better than paper towel and way more fun. Um, I should probably get ShamWow as a sponsor now. We should figure out if that's a thing. We could do that. That'd be great. Then I'd be a ShamWow salesman. Hey, hey, if it's a good product. I'll try it. Hey. But Schiff isn't the only one out there who's running the propaganda campaign for the left, running interference for the left, and doesn't really care what the truth of any of this is. You've got former CIA director, and this kind of hurts because, you know, it's my old home my old home agency, I took a lot of pride in the agency when I was there, and, and I can tell you all, the good news is most of, a vast majority of the people that work in these places do it because they find the mission interesting and want to serve their country. The, the usual answer is they just want to serve their country, also because they find this stuff interesting, though. Uh, see, I'll tell you the truth. Other people, oh, it's because they're just, you know, mission first. Yeah, the mission's important. They also think this stuff can be kind of cool and interesting, though, and they want an uh, unusual career. I'm talking about on the intelligence side now, and, and there's that, right? Because if, if you just want a steady federal government paycheck, you, know, you go work at the Commerce Department or something, right? I mean, Commerce Department's not going to be like, hey, we're going to put you in this place where 
if you drink the water, you're going to get super sick. And there are people that are trying to find you and maybe kill you and cut your head off on you know a video. That that usually doesn't happen with commerce department. That that can happen, unfortunately, in the in you know on the intelligence side of things. So, you know, if you're just looking for a federal paycheck, you might go in some other directions. You know, FBI guys and gals, pardon me. Uh, you know, they have to kick indoors and. They got maniacs swinging meat cleavers at them, and that's and that happens, and you don't even read about the story, right? I mean, that's just another day in the FBI sometimes. So, those are the you know there, there's a separation here in what kind of federal government service people want to do. But yeah, Brennan's out there, and he's look, he was Obama's like chief counterterrorism advisor. I mean, this he's a very obviously political guy, and I I wish people would stop with this. This is why they can't put me on air at places like CNN because I'll just annihilate some of the very dishonest uh, tropes that they will trot out at, at a convenient moment. Like, for example, if someone's worked for the intelligence community for like 20 years, they're just a public servant, you know, an honorable public servant. These are phrases that don't even really mean anything. Trust me, you don't stop having opinions and ideas and you don't give up vanity and, and well, ambition maybe somewhat in the federal government, but you don't give up vanity just because you happen to work as a civil servant. Um, and you may very well have ideological motivations for what you are doing in a partisan sense, right? I mean, I joined the CIA because I wanted to help fight against al-Qaeda. That was why. Did I do a good job or not? You know, maybe a discussion for another time. I did the best I could. But the point is, that was why I joined. certainly wasn't for the money. It certainly wasn't for the glory. Uh, but Brennan is held up to, oh, he's not, this is a very, very partisan guy. And he goes out there and says things like the following on the Sunday shows, meet the press. Well, there were things in that dossier that made me wonder whether or not they would, they were in fact accurate and true. Uh, and I do think it was up to the FBI to see whether or not they could verify any of it. I think Jim Comey has said that it was it contained salacious and unverified information. Just because it was unverified didn't mean it wasn't true. Do you remember, everyone, that, or maybe I tweeted this, I can't remember if I said it on the show or I tweeted this, but if it rings true, it is true, that's really the left's approach to the entirety of the Trump administration, that that was actually a perfect encapsulation of how the media treats Trump, how the media deals with Trump. If it rings true, it is true. Here you have the former CIA director who's getting pretty close to saying the same thing. I know it's not exactly the same thing, but... Just because it's unverified doesn't mean it wasn't true. Oh, well, let's deal with that for a second. Um, let me start with, if we're going to start basing legal, legally binding processes like a FISA court and eliminating the Fourth Amendment rights of American citizens through surveillance and intelligence gathering processes based upon unverified information, then my theorizing with you recently about how they could just open up a Pfizer warrant on anyone for basically any reason? Because all it takes is someone to show up and say, you know, so-and-so is talking to, you know, so-and-so is talking to the Chinese about some espionage stuff or something. You know, you better get a, oh, okay, well, so-and-so says it. No verification? They're going to start, you know, think about the, the implications of what this means for law enforcement, folks. And I know we have a lot, a lot of law enforcement that are listening to this show right now, and God bless and thank you for what you do. But if all of a sudden law enforcement could just, you know, kick. I mean, I did say this is kind of like the intelligence version of swatting, right? If law enforcement all of a sudden is showing up and just kicking indoors because somebody doesn't like you and they said that, 
you know, you're running a meth lab in your kitchen and they don't do any due diligence or fact checking and they come, you know, running in through your living room with a, a bear cat and start, you know, throwing flashbangs everywhere and little Foo-Foo the kitty cat is getting all scared and you're freaked out, that's not okay. We don't want that. There has to be some verification beyond just what somebody says. A major part of that is also who is the person saying it? What are their motivations? I mean, this is actually all intelligence analysis 101, by the way, which is why I find all these stories so interesting and why I hope you find it worthwhile to have a former intelligence analyst talking to you and working with you on all these issues here on this show. Me. But, oh, by the way, Brennan said uh, dossier, which is just a reminder. Brennan, when Brennan was at the, uh, when Brennan was at the agency, it was when one of, it was when you had the whole, I don't, you know, you can say this is a nothing burger, but I don't care because it, it made me annoyed. Brennan was at the CIA and that was when the federal government was in the whole, uh, it, it's not, it's not, um, uh, what's the name? Uh, gosh, I'm, I'm uh, ISIS. It's ISIL, right? ISIL. And you had President Obama, ISIL. Oh, it's ISIL. Oh, we got to deal with ISIL. And everyone's like, what the heck is this ISIL crap? Just say ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Well, I, you'll notice it's all gone away. All of a sudden, we don't have to say ISIL anymore. This is just Obama and some of his top people like, we're really smart. We're going to say ISIL. There's no basis in reality for this whatsoever. Makes no sense. I know people say, oh, Sham in Arabic is closer to Levant. We're America. We can call it what we want to call it. It's the Islamic, it was the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. All right. <sighs> but, you know, so Brennan was at the was at the agency. He was director when we we're saying ISIL all the time. And now he's running around saying uh, dossier. Oh, the dossier. Just say dossier, buddy. I know this is a little thing and I'm, I'm nitpicking here, but whatever. The point is, I don't like it. And. His notion that just because it's unverified doesn't mean it's not true, that's so misleading in so many ways. Because as I was saying to you, this isn't just information that they wanted to run to ground and check. They took action based on unverified information. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of raw intel is crap. A lot of it. Raw intel means the information that just comes in to the various sources of information that we have out there in law enforcement and the intelligence community. Right? A lot of you, and again, go to the law enforcement world. Yeah? Does every source who comes to you and says, yeah, you know, I, so-and-so's uh, you know, running, a, running a chop shop on the other side of town. You're just like, oh, let's get the SWAT team. I mean, usually you're going to, right? I mean, you guys know. You're going to do a little checking. Because if, if not, you're going to show up with a SWAT team thinking you're breaking up a meth lab or a chop shop. And it's going to be like Luigi's Pizzeria, and you're going to terrify a bunch of people for no reason. And you're going to find out that the guy who called you is actually Luigi's competition. Mario. <laughs> so the point here is they have to check the information because if you take action on unverified information, think about what that opens us up to. Most raw intel is crap. Any of you who have worked in the government, military, you know this, right? There's Some clown will walk in somewhere to a government building and be like, you know, Yes, uh, Osama bin Laden is hiding under my bed. I would like a million dollars, please. And, you know, technically, you may have to report up a chain of command that there's a guy who says Osama's hiding under his bed at home, and he wants a million dollars. But if you were to have SEAL Team 6 repel from helicopters at this guy's home looking for Osama under the bed, people are going to be like, hmm, that's probably, a, for a whole bunch of reasons, a bad idea. 
But notice, again, the dishonesty from one of the formerly most senior bureaucrats in the whole intelligence community. Just because it's unverified doesn't mean it isn't true. Well, that's not the point. You can't take action on it until it is verified, and therefore you know that it is true. Because if you take action based on unverified information, you pollute and distort and degrade the entire process. Whether it's law enforcement, FISA warrants, intelligence collection. They keep talking about undermining institutions. My friends, I can't tell you. This is, you want to, you want to undermine institutions, convince the American people that you can open up an all-encompassing like communications FISA warrant on them based on what some dude said to some dude that nobody ever checked. That's a pretty big deal. Well, the media, it's a, but it's a dud. You see, it's a dud. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing's a dud. Oof. I haven't even gotten into the State Department side of this yet, by the way. We're going to have some fun with that one. Oh, yes, I enjoy taking swipes at the State Department. That's going to happen. Uh, we'll also take some of your calls. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We have much more show. Uh, I'm going to have Sarah, just to give you, a, I'm going to say that and not tell you. No, no, I'm going to tell you. Uh, we have Sarah Carter joining for a deep dive on all this in the second part of the next hour. Also going to talk to you a little bit, just a little thoughts on the Super Bowl and nachos and Justin Timberlake. We'll get there. That's third hour. Uh, make fun of Hillary, third hour. That's going to be great. And then end of the show, I actually have some really uh, serious but heartfelt and worthwhile stuff to talk to you about. Not about me, but about just wisdom that I saw somewhere online and wanted to share with you. And I think you'll... Uh, particularly today, I, I would hope that all of you get a chance to either stick around till the end of the show or at least download this podcast and listen to the, uh, well, hopefully the whole show, but certainly the end of the show, because I think you'll find it really, uh, really worthwhile. And with that, we'll run into a quick break. All right, team, we got some lines lit. Let's get to it. Patrick in Wabash, Indiana. What's up, Patrick? Yes, I wanted to uh, know uh, what you think about nobody's taking this serious enough. Why isn't uh, this dossier, false dossier, and uh, the Uranium One deal, why isn't it subversion and treason? Ethel and Julius Rosenberg have nothing on Hillary and the um, Obama administration all signing off on this uh, Uranium One, and the Uranium goes to our enemy, Russia, and they'll be selling to uh, Iran and uh, North Korea. Okay, and, Patrick, uh, hold on. So let's slow, slow down a little bit, and I, I appreciate your passion. A few things here to keep in mind. One is that on um, the Rosenbergs uh, stealing nuclear secrets and, and and giving them to our mortal enemies, the Soviet Union at the time, is that, that's a, a very specific thing, and it actually does fall under the category of espionage. I believe they were the last people executed in this country for espionage, if memory serves. Uh, others have all gotten life sentences. The worst of the worst have gotten life sentences. Um, when you're you're ta- you talked about a bunch of things here, the uh, uranium uranium one issue. I do think that there will be some. Uh, Hearings and, and investigation into that going on, going on with the Trump administration. I, I do believe they'll be looking into it more. I think the DOJ has already mentioned something about that. But on those issues, for example, the Hillary pay-to-play scheme with the Clinton Foundation, there's a lot of gray area. Look, the Clintons are shady, and the Clintons both have backgrounds in the law. 
So they now that doesn't mean that Bill didn't break all kinds of laws because he clearly did. And it doesn't mean that Hillary didn't break all kinds of laws, but she clearly did. But they generally tried to use the Clinton Foundation as a slush fund, but to do it in such a way they would always at least have a defense whereby they're not selling influence. They're selling charity. They're they're helping the world. So it, it becomes difficult to get to a place where you could bring a specific prosecution against the Clinton Foundation unless you're going to try unless you can prove quid pro quo corruption, which is a very important term in this because that's the standard, right? Meaning what for what? So, for example, if I gave the Clintons a check for the Clinton Foundation for a million dollars and then six months later, my secretary, which I don't have, nor do I have the kind of money to give them a check. I'm just saying theoretically, six months later, my assistant, my secretary calls them and say, says, so Buck wants a meeting because he represents a conglomerate that needs a State Department license to do business in Kazakhstan or something. That maybe you can get me on a quid pro quo, but because it goes into a a charity instead of directly into my pockets, there's an additional layer. And that's the kind of evil genius of what the Clintons did. They polluted charity, but they created a slush fund that that was a branding mechanism for them that supported their lifestyle that flew them all over the world. But they can always use a veil of protection of the charity to keep them out of legal jeopardy. And I know that's a lot of I'm throwing a lot at you, Patrick, but I'm, I'm trying to just take your your whole thought processes here. And then on the on the issue of treason and. Uh, treason is a very specific charge. People use it as a thing to say about people they don't like in government. But treason is giving aid and comfort to the enemy. So if you're going to talk about a legal uh, an actual prosecution of someone for treason, you'd have to show them giving aid and comfort to the enemy on the uranium on the uranium issue. They're not exporting the uranium, which is true. Uh, so that's something else that I think you have to keep in mind here. I mean, I, I'm as appalled by the Clinton Foundation as anybody out there, but I also want to keep keep it into the, in the realm of what is provable and what is realistic. I think corruption is provable. I think treason is going way too far. Um, we got to talk about the State Department, though. Was this a whole other area of propaganda against Trump? We'll get there. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Saxton Show, everybody. Hour two is upon us, and I got some breaking news for you, which I think I was going to break for you before, but I held it a little longer. Maybe because I got distracted. But here's what we got. A House committee, the U.S. House of Representatives committee, has voted to approve the release of the Democrat response to a contentious Republican memo alleging FBI bias. That's the headline on Reuters here. So a memo to respond to the memo. That's what we've got here. You'll notice that this brings up a whole bunch of interesting little Side plots, doesn't it? First of all, if the memo was a dud, as we discussed in the last hour, which is not true, but which a lot of Democrats and their media allies are saying, what's the need for a response memo? If it's a dud, remember, they didn't say it's just not true, although they said that, too. They're saying it's a dud. Why why respond to a dud? Oh, maybe it actually was important, and they're just lying to their base and trying to downplay this. If it's a dud, there's no need for you to release your own. I would also note that 
their memo is, I believe, 10 pages. Okay, what are they going to write for 10 pages? Here is my guess, and my prediction of the Democrat memo is that it will have no additional information, nothing that comes from the realm of declassified or anything like that. It will just be 10 pages of Democrat misdirection and talking points to downplay, undermine, and try to quickly move past the Republican memo. So, that's what I think we're going to have there. That is my expectation for this. That said, yeah, let's release it. Release the memo, right? Release the memo. Go for it. I don't, I don't much see any reason not to have it released. We'll be joined by Sarah Carter, by the way, later in the hour to talk about all this stuff, the FISA, the... Uh, FISA memo, FISA abuse memo, everything that's going on in, in this world, because Sarah's on the front lines breaking stories on this and dealing with it all the time. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the memo will be released. The memo is going to be released, I think. It's going to the White House now. Some are saying that Trump might block it. I see no reason for Trump to block it. I can't imagine. Now, if the uh, Democrats get this memo through, if they are, in fact, able to uh, get this thing released, then we can expect that if my prediction about it is true, that it has no new information, that it is just a screed, it is an editorial posing as national security information to set straight some aspect of this debate, then that will show us that, once again, Democrats were either exaggerating or lying. When it came to national security information, they were lying. There was no national security information that was sensitive, that was problematic in its release in the Republican memo. That was a lie. Now they're saying that it was a, or they were saying immediately that the Republican memo was a dud. I guess we can call it the Schiff memo. You know, America is about to get Schiffed. Um, That is likely to have nothing of substance and that they can't come up with any substance. I'm predicting here, but I I have very high confidence in this one. I wish there was a way I could legally place a bet in Vegas on this one. Um, That will just go to show you that all of their, oh, there's a lack of context, there's a lack of context. This is their opportunity to show us the context. This is the opportunity to show us what the context is for, or that what the lacking context is for the Republican memo, because that's what they were always saying, right? And that's what some of the FBI said too. It omit it omitted information. Oh, I don't think so. Well, we'll see. We'll see if I'm wrong. I'm willing to bet. And I think a lot of you would be with me here. I'm gonna bet that I'm right on this one. So that's one part of it. Democrat memo now is going through the same process. You know, what is it? What's the what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Isn't that what they is that like old old nursery rhyme stuff? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's an old phrase. Old old time phrase there from Buck. And it's true. If you're for transparency, then you're for transparency. That's this is pretty straightforward. This is not overly complicated. Democrats want to release their own memo, fine, go for it. It's not gonna change anything. In fact, I think you'll just see that they're repeating what they already have on there. They're repeating what they've already been saying. Let's get on to some new information now. So there's another interesting part of this whole 
FISA abuse scandal, surveillance of Carter Page and Papadopoulos and how this ties into Trump and how the media is trying to use this to undermine and, in fact, end this administration. What is the new information that we have on this? Well, here's Catherine Harris from Fox News. Last month, the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, along with another senior Senate Republican, Lindsey Graham, sent a criminal referral to the Justice Department asking for an investigation of the former British spy, Christopher Steele, who compiled the dossier on the basis that they said there was evidence that he had lied to the FBI about his contacts with the media and the distribution of the dossier. In the document is a new allegation by the senators that Clinton associates also fed information to Steele. And it reads in part, it is troubling enough that the Clinton campaign funded Mr. Steele's work, but that these Clinton associates were contemporaneously feeding Mr. Steele allegations raises additional concerns about his credibility. Oh, wait a second. So, because Hillary Clinton was a secretary of state, which means that she was the boss of the State Department for a while, boss lady of the State Department, and she would have had ties to very senior people in the State Department as a result of that. The State Department leans left to begin with. I've told you that in the past, and I'm reiterating it here today. What the heck is this all about? Now we're being told that there were folks who were Clinton Acolytes, disciples, I mean, Clinton cronies in state. Because remember, if you're the assistant deputy assistant secretary of whatever at the State Department, you know, deputy under assistant under assistant secretary. You stay around after Hillary moves on to whatever. I mean, you stay around in your State Department job, most likely. Oh, and by the way, how would you leave or how would you get elevated from your deputy under assistant assistant secretary job at state? If Hillary becomes president. So you have quite a vested interest in a Hillary presidency because she would be immensely powerful. She'd be in a position to either elevate you within the State Department bureaucracy or get you one of those really lucrative consulting gigs for former government employees that tend to go the way of the swamp dwellers, if you will, the D.C. insiders. Right. Get some fat contract to advise people and basically just have lunch and do Google searches. I would know it. I have friends who have worked for these places uh, on K Street. You know, that's what happens. So if you want to get one of those gigs and all of a sudden triple or quadruple your government salary, you know, you want Hillary to win. And so what we're being told here is that Christopher Steele uh, was also giving information I'm sorry, uh, that Clinton Associates were also giving information to uh, to Christopher Steele at the time. So people within the State Department bureaucracy were, in fact, uh, telling Christopher Steele stuff. Oh, and by the way, it sounds like information might have gone the other way, too. Here's former Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland. When he was doing this other work and became concerned... The dossier. The dossier. uh, He passed... uh, two to four pages of short points of what he was finding. And our immediate reaction to that was, this is not in our purview. This needs to go to the FBI if there is any concern here that one candidate or the election as a whole uh, might be influenced by the Russian Federation. That's for the something for the FBI to investigate. 
So hold on a second. Which is it here? Because if you have Clinton cronies at the State Department giving Steele information and then Steele running that to the FBI, do you also have Steele getting his information however he gets it and then going back to the State Department to meet with, remember, State Department's a huge organization, meet with other people and say, oh, this is the information I've got? I mean, this is circle circular reporting uh, in the worst possible way, which is a cardinal sin in intelligence and analysis work. You don't take one source and then pretend it's three sources. In fact, if you were writing a, a high school report on, uh, you know, Liechtenstein, and or is it Stein, and you really just use the encyclopedia, but you wrote like five books about, you know, my glorious travel in Liechtenstein, you made up sources, that's bad, right? That's actually, some people would fail you for that. Others would just take points off. But you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to fake the sources that you have or pretend that one source is really several sources. In intelligence work, you can imagine quite the same, quite the same issue. Right? If, if I come up to you and I tell you that Osama bin Laden's under my bed, you may say, well, you know, Buck's had a long day. Maybe he's a little out of it. If I say I've got five different people, all of whom can confirm that Osama bin Laden's hiding under my bed, you might say to me, Oh, that seems, I mean, who are, the, who are these people? When in reality, they're just four people that I told that, and they're like, yeah, I guess Buck's telling the truth. Now it's five people all independently corroborating that, you know, that's where Osama's hiding. Yeah, that's right. You know, he's still running around somewhere. Um, that's, that's one way of looking at this problem, meaning that's what I think happened here. You have Steele running around trying to wage a one-man campaign to stop Trump from becoming president in mind he's also a foreigner i know that we think of you know the brits are like our cousins across the ocean but he's not an american not allowed to vote not not really a part of our political process and given the fury and fervor over all the russian machinations of all kinds about our election and it's all all foreign influence in the election christopher Steele is foreign influence in the election folks i don't want the brits or the british government or any other government trying to determine what goes on here any more than I want the Russian government trying to determine what goes on over here. You know, the Swedes are great. I don't want them picking our next president. In fact, I think that the Swedes would be just as bad at picking our next president as a whole bunch of other countries that are way less uh, economically well-off than Sweden. So that's just something else to keep in mind. I, I find this, uh, this whole notion of the State Department now being an additional avenue for information that is anti-Trump, very troubling, and, and completely believable, by the way. Um, I, I've, had, I've had many, many friends at State from over the years. When I lived in D.C., I had a lot of State Department friends and spent a lot of time around people at the State Department. And it's a, the best way to think about the State Department, and people are, I know I'm going to get, you know, an angry email or two here. So I'm like, Buck, I work for State, and, like, I'm awesome. Like, I love America. What are you doing? I know you're out there. I get it. But I'm talking about in the aggregate, right, in general. And the prototypical State Department guy or gal is an urban-dwelling Democrat who thinks that Bernie Sanders would have been a great option. <laughs> okay, that, that's you get a lot of that at the State Department. Uh, you know, they they speak foreign languages from their study abroad programs from predominantly like second-tier private colleges, and they think that you know people should listen to them more because of that. So you get a lot of that at State. And that means you're going to have a whole bunch of folks that are, let's just say, not part of the MAGA movement 
So if they were in some way involved here in the Steele dossier, I would it would not surprise me in the least. And no matter what, it now I just I just want to know was it a one-way information flow or two-way? Was Steele briefing state with anti-Trump stuff? Was state briefing Steele with anti-Trump stuff or was it both ways? Right? I, that that's what we need to figure out now, but it seems quite clear that we have um we have some some additional digging to do. To that point about digging, we have investigative journalist Sarah Carter joining us here in just a, uh, a few minutes. So we will get into quite a bit of that. I would note that there was some reports today about what's going on with uh, Syria and Iraq, including U.S. troops pulling out of Iraq. Um, someone remind me tomorrow. I'll, I'll get it. We'll do a buck brief, some national security work on what's going on over there and what we're going to do. And it looks like we might be withdrawing from Syria in large numbers or not large numbers, but a large percentage might be withdrawing from Iraq, what that all means and uh, what's going on with the Assad regime, what we can expect there. That's not something we're going to hit today, but I just want to keep that in the uh, background of what we're talking about on the show. And also I'm hoping to do a a little bit of a deep dive and a history of uh, MS-13 specifically as we get going here on the immigration debate and, We talk about enforcement priorities in sanctuary cities. I think we should all have a baseline understanding and background history on MS-13, Mara Salvatrucha, MS-13, and what the gang has, what it's been all about, what it does, and how big it is and everything else. So I think that's, despite what MSNBC said last week about how no one knows MS-13 except for Fox News viewers or whatever, you know, I guess over at MSNBC, knowledge is not power, you see much better you know you, you want you want a lot of ignorance all right we're gonna roll into a quick break we'll be right back the actual political motivation and beginning of this was on the republican side it was then switched over where there was democratic funding it really goes to the credibility but that is an issue that the judge in issuing the fisa warrant takes into consideration so Dick Durbin is still running around with the, you know, all the dossier stuff started with the Republicans. Like, no, come on, Dick Durbin. I'm going to say you're better than that, but that's not true either. But come on, man. Come on. You know, tell, tell the truth at least. Why not? You know, we only go around once in this world. Why not tell the truth for a change? Another thing I, I meant to get to before, uh, we're going to have Sarah Carter joining us here shortly, and then we'll also get into in the next hour uh, a little bit of Super Bowl reaction, Hillary Clinton blaming misogyny and saying and saying that climate change is misogynistic. Get ready for that. It's a real thing, everybody. Next hour. And, and at the end of the hour, I have some uh, some thoughts, some some wisdom from, well, a, a particularly uh, important and heartfelt place for all of you. That's I'm just sharing with you. It's not from me, but it's something that I saw that I think you'll all appreciate and that's at the end of the next hour. I hope you can stay through for that. I uh, I saw this guy, or I saw this editorial, why I am leaving the FBI. And I've noticed a trend here. Former, and look, I, I was early on this one, right? It used to be, what do you mean? You're, you're leaving the, you're leaving the intelligence community and you're going to be in media? And like, now all these guys want to be in media, right? I was, let's be honest, you know, Clapper and... Brennan and Preet Bharara and all these guys, you're welcome. You're welcome. I was a trendsetter here. You know, I, I was early on. I've, I've been doing this for seven years. I, I was early. Now everyone wants to get in on this game, right? All these guys are working government. They're like, oh, I was, you know, 
deputy under assistant secretary for for lo- logistics of making sure potato chips were adequately stocked in the in the break room, you know, and they're all now on running around over at MSNBC and whatnot. But this guy writes this piece the, for the New York Times, why I am leaving the FBI. And it has a lot of like self-congratulatory stuff, you know. One of the greatest honors of my life was walking across the stage at FBI Academy and receiving my special agent badge from the director, Robert Mueller. Oh, big surprise, Mueller. You know, and then he goes on and on, and he starts to say, you know, that this is all, it's all so partisan. What are we to make, then, of the recent allegations of political bias at the FBI, particularly those involving two employees whose cringeworthy texts continue to threaten the agency's reputation? Uh, these political attacks on the Bureau must stop. If those critics of the agency, blah, 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 and he goes on, right? So th- this is why he's, he's leaving the FBI because of the political criticism he's saying, right? Who wants to guess what we find out next about this guy who left the FBI? Who wants to, who wants to take a guess? Well, did he go, uh, you know, is he going to go lead a, a quiet life somewhere, just, you know, vo- volunteering in his off time and, and trying to build a small business? Oh, he's a CNN analyst now. Oh, what a shock. What a sh- so he's leaving the FBI because of political pressure and is running right over to CNN right away. Hmm. Is it really the political pressure at the FBI that's bothering him or is it the uh, capitalizing here? Is it, is it the best option for him to try and ride this wave into a contributorship gig somewhere? I, I want to let the guy know, look, go to CNN. You know, you'll be there for a year. You'll be on TV sometimes, but, you know, they're still not going to give you a show, buddy. They they only give shows to people that are really inside the, inside the cool kid's table, you know. So go have fun over there for a little bit. But at the end of the day, yet another voice saying that Trump is basically Hitler. It's not adding to the conversation. It's not helpful. And pretending that you're above politics and that's why you left the FBI so you can go be an analyst at CNN is comical. It is comical. Uh, we got Sarah Carter joining us here in a few minutes. She's, like I said, front lines of this issue with the memo and everything else. So uh, she's also a good friend of mine. Stay with it. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. All right, so the memo continues to be top of the news cycle. A lot of back and forth over the weekend after the memo dropped on Friday. We have a lady with us right now who has been at the center of the storm on this for quite some time because she's actually chasing down the truth and getting facts out there so that we know what's real and what's not with all this. We have Sarah Carter on the line. She's an investigative journalist and also a Fox News contributor and an old pal of mine. Sarah, thank you for making the time. Oh, it's great, Buck. It's great to be with you. All right. So first, in the memo aftermath, a lot of things coming up now. And as I suspected, that was just an important day, kind of a a major data point in the story, but by no means the end of any of these stories. Tell me a bit about this criminal referral with Christopher Steele and uh, and Grassley in Congress. What's going on with that? I think this is probably the biggest development uh, in the case of the FISA abuse case as well as the dossier. On January 4th, 
basically Senator Grassley and Senator Lindsey Graham referred to the Justice Department, Christopher Steele, for a criminal investigation. And that was based on information that they had obtained from the FBI when they looked at Christopher Steele's own testimony in the London courts and others and compared that to FBI information that they had received. And today they actually released a heavily redacted criminal referral. But if you pick through the criminal referral, you see that they accuse him of blatantly lying to the FBI. Further, you see that there were other people involved in what appears to be a second dossier. Now, I've spoken to my sources, and those those sources have said that the second dossier was information fed by, by actually by Hillary Clinton's allies, her friends, to Christopher Steele. And there was someone in particular at the State Department that was also feeding information to Christopher Steele that he then used in his dossier, which was used to obtain the FISA warrant. So this is a very circular, very in and I'm sorry for the noise in the background, I'm outdoors, but this is a this this shows how very incestuous they say it was between Chris, Christopher Steele, Hillary Clinton, and others involved in putting together this dossier. Don't worry, Sarah. We assume that if you're outside, it's because you've got a dead drop going with one of your sources and you're about to get another <laughs> another bombshell out there. So we excuse any any and all ambient noise is fine. Uh, but tell me a bit about uh, where where the Democrat memo stands in all this. I'm seeing that the the House may vote on it. I'm well, I mean, tell me what you're hearing from your sources about why should or should this not come out? Look. Every source I've spoken to says, let the Democrat memo come out. Let them come out with their 10-page rebuttal. Uh, I spoke to others who said that it's laughable on its face. I don't know if that's true. I have not had a chance to look at that. The Democrats want to put their point of view out there. They, you know, they have stated over and over again uh, over the last few days that the Nunez memo is not uh, accurate, that it doesn't tell the whole story, and they want to release their own. But remember, they have to go through the same process, Buck, the exact same process that the Republicans went through. And that means that their memo, their memo needs to be thoroughly vetted. And it has not been vetted yet. It is in the process of being vetted. And apparently, as soon as that is done, they will vote to pass uh, so that the Democratic memo can go forward and become public as well. And I think it's important. I think it's important that we see both sides of this and understand where Representative Schiff is coming from and what he is going to do to con- be con- to contend with the Nunez memo. But I tell you this, I've spoken to a number of sources who had direct access to the McCabe testimony, and they said he was specifically asked about the Steele dossier and whether or not the FISA application could have been obtained without it. And according to the sources that I've spoken with, McCabe was very explicit that he would not have been able to obtain the FISA warrant. The FBI would not have been able to obtain it without the dossier. What can you tell us, Sarah? And everyone, we're speaking to Sarah Carter. Check out her latest because she's the one who's been dropping bombshells on this story now for over a year. Sarah A, no H, Sarah and then acarter.com is where she posts her pieces as well as in various uh, outlets across the country. Sarah Uh, There's this talking point we heard a lot of in the 24, 48 hours after the memo drop that, well, they already were doing surveillance on page before the the dossier came into effect and or they were doing surveillance on Papadopoulos before the dossier came into effect. Do we have any 
I, are, is, are people just saying that without being able to prove it? Do we have any information on that? What, what can you tell us about that? That the notion that pre-dossier there was already FBI surveillance of people tied to Trump? You know, I don't think everybody has all the facts in place. I did speak to Carter Page myself. I did ask him direct questions, um, particularly about information that came out with his meeting with the Russians, um, a very brief meeting that he said he had. He uh, adamantly denies. He said he was never paid by the Russians to give any advice, that when he did offer his advice, it was based mostly on his own uh, ability uh, as a professor to, 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 to try to teach them uh, and, and kind of direct economic policies and things of that nature as far as what he was teaching at NYU at the time. I think what's really fascinating here is that Page and Papadopoulos, remember the story on George Papadopoulos didn't even come out until much later, actually it was last December, this past December, when that story and that revelation came about. And that never had been a point of contention and never had been brought out in any news stories prior to the dossier. The dossier, in fact, was the main reason that the FBI, according to all the sources I've spoken with, got the FISA warrant to continue uh, surveilling Carter Page. Before that, according to Carter Page and according to others, he was more of a witness for the FBI. And I have talked to FBI sources who said that they had approached Carter Page after the meeting and really just wanted to utilize Carter Page in their investigation of the Russians. Well, that, that's so, a critical, Sarah. I mean, this is a critical point, because if he was working and I've seen this, too, from some people tied into all this in the investigation, if Carter Page was assisting the FBI in any way in advance of the FISA warrant, then they can't turn around, they being people that are running with this story as a means of getting at the Trump administration, they can't run around and say, oh, but he was already the F- he was already on the FBI's radar before the FISA warrant, because if he's on their radar because he's helping them, that does not count. That's exactly it. That's exactly the point. And that's the point that I think a lot of people have been trying to make here. What was the role Carter Page played in the FBI's investigation? And if he was a witness, as as it has been told by sources that I've spoken with, then it makes him very different than being the target, which he later became when the dossier came about. And remember, the dossier Christopher Steele put together was fed in bits and pieces to the FBI. So we know and we have heard that the first time they went in for the FISA application, they were denied. And it was the second time when they had more information, apparently the dossier, along with Michael Isakoff's story in Yahoo News, that the FISA was actually accepted and they went through with their surveillance of Carter Page. Sarah, can we this keep you can why. we keep you through the break for one second just to, to ask you about the State Department angle on this in a second? Absolutely. Guys, we're talking to Sarah Carter. You should be following her on social media if you're not already. Uh, Follow her on Twitter and Facebook. Her website is saraacarter.com, saraacarter.com, and you see her on Fox News all the time. Uh, We're going to be back in just a moment with more from Sarah. Stay with me. All right, welcome back, everyone. We've got Sarah Carter on the line talking to her about the latest in Memo Gate. I guess we don't really have a better term for it yet. Russia Gate. We just add gate onto anything of news interest these days, it seems. 
Uh, but Sarah, thanks for staying through the break with us. This is a, this is a big addition to the story. We don't often hear a lot of new, and recently with the memo and now this, there's some there's some pieces that are getting added into the puzzle here that are are meaningful and that advance our understanding of what really happened when it comes to Russia Trump collusion. Tell me about how the State Department all of a sudden plays in this. Well, I think this is the most fascinating part, Buck, of the entire saga here, that all of a sudden now the State Department is involved in this memo and in and actually in the dossier itself that Christopher Steele was putting together. In the referral, the criminal referral that Chuck Grassley, along with Lindsey Graham, gave to the DOJ, they specifically state, specifically state that sources within the State Department were feeding information to Christopher Steele, who then used that information in his dossier, which he fed to the FBI. Those sources were friends of the Clintons. That's very important because that changes pretty much everything. Although they said that Christopher Steele got information from the Russians, this was an added piece of information that Christopher Steele withheld from the FBI. And that's why the referral was made. He did not inform the FBI that he was being fed information from people that were closely aligned with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Now you go to the memo and you say to yourself, Nunez specifically pointed out that Bruce Orr, in his four-page memo, that Bruce Orr had told the FBI that Christopher Steele was intent on not seeing President Trump elected. So now, take a step back. He's not just um, a former intelligence analyst collecting information that he found surprising and stunning. He is a former intelligence officer from, the, from Britain who was collecting information to harm President Trump. And this is why people are saying we need to look into this. We need to see if our FISA court and if our intelligence tools were weaponized to go after a candidate. Was this being used by the political opponent, by Hillary Clinton's campaign, members of her camp, friends of hers, to basically spread disinformation about President Trump and his campaign? I mean, this I is incredible, Sarah. So if, if what you're telling me, sources. if what you're telling me is is borne out with sourcing and reporting now, it would mean that there could have been. When you say State Department, I think this is important for everyone to know. First of all, the State Department is a very I know knew a lot of people at State. State is a left of center at a minimum organization overall. Yes, there are former ground pounding, awesome patriotic Marines that also go and work at the State Department. But it's mostly people that got master's degrees from Johns Hopkins and Columbia's uh, SEPA school, and and they are very left of center. So that's the overall ethos. But even putting aside whether it was just some bureaucrat, Sarah, who wanted to get even with Trump or just didn't like Trump. And we know there's been a lot of anti-Trump sentiment coming out of Foggy Bottom for a while. It could be senior appointees or it could have been senior appointees of the Obama administration at state people that had worked very closely with Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, it could be those people passing information to Christopher Steele, Christopher Steele presenting that to the FBI, and this would be a whole nother channel for oppo research, in essence, getting handed to the FBI as though it was actual intelligence. I mean, that's stunning. It is stunning. And, I mean, I'm reading directly right now from the criminal referral where uh, they state explicitly 
It is troubling enough that the Clinton campaign funded Mr. Steele's work, but that these Clinton associates were contemporaneously feeding Mr. Steele allegations raises additional concerns about his credibility. There is substantial evidence suggesting that Mr. Steele materially misled the FBI about a key aspect of his dossier efforts, which uh, on which bears on his credibility. This is so important because this opens up a whole new chapter, as you said, Buck, in this dossier and in Christopher Steele's involvement with the dossier. And without this dossier, it appears they would have never been able to gain a FISA warrant to conduct this investigation of Carter Page. Sarah, we've been told now for a few days, because as, as a main part of the Democrat rebuttal, that there's other information than the dossier. I would just want to know, are, are you hearing from, from your sources, from people in, in the Beltway who could affect change on this, that they're going to try and get that information out there too? Because I think that the uh, one of the biggest uh, hits the DOJ took here was the pretense that this was national security sensitive information that we could know about. I mean, that four-page memo was important, but there was nothing that was endangering any sources, any methods, and the, that they pretended that was the case is really harmful to their credibility. Are we going to be able to get more information, you think, out of them? I mean, if there's other stuff, can we find out what that other stuff is for the FISA warrant or no? Well, you would think so. I mean, there's been so many leaks, and the one leak that we haven't seen, the major leak that is supposed to prove some type of Russia collusion with Trump is that particular leak. We still haven't seen that. There has been no evidence to prove that as of yet. Now, if there is other evidence that they used for the FISA warrant, I would like to know what that was, too, because I think that's essentially important. And maybe the 10-page memo by the Democrats will explain that. But so far, we haven't heard anything in that realm. There's been no leaks, which we were expecting. Uh, to contradict the Nunez memo on that part. So either they're holding it close hold or they just don't have it. Sarah, when can we expect your next piece? And I know it'll be up on SarahACarter.com, but can you tell us when to expect it and maybe a little bit of what to expect, or are we still working on that? Well, we have a piece coming out today, which is um, a story I've been working on, which deals with the referral and the possible people involved in the Clinton campaign who were feeding the British spy his information. All right, everybody. Sarah Carter, look for her on Fox News. Follow her on social media and check out her latest piece out today. Sarah, great work as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Beck. Love it. You too. Um, all right, team. So, uh, yeah, there you have it. You know, look, Sarah has been such a, a warrior for the truth on this whole issue and let me tell you, I've known Sarah for years now. I go back with Sarah at least six or seven years uh, working with her back in the old Real News days in The Blaze. And she was a colleague of mine at The Blaze for a while. And, you know, it's it's a lot harder to do the job when the deep state and the establishment are against you and not feeding you information. And, you know, it's, it's a very different thing, right? For a lot of these so-called uh, national security analysts and reporters, particularly the reporters, at the major papers, they're literally just they're, they're spoon fed information, sometimes classified information that the Democrat establishment wants out there. And they get to act like, oh, we're intrepid reporters. Sarah's finding stuff that people don't want her to find out. So she's doing really, uh, really great work. And I, I just would know that I'm still stunned with all this. That there's so many people running around acting like, yeah, you know, 
So what if they turn on a FISA warrant based on what we would call rumint in the intelligence community? Rumor intelligence, which is just a funny way of saying not intelligence. You can just have somebody. I mean, think about this. Someone could get a referral if the FBI started on me. So, yeah, you know, you know, my uh, my my cousin, my cousin knows this this guy named Kami Bear. And, and he says that Buck is trying to run some special you know, R- Russia collusion effort. And you convince someone of the FBI and, and, and they can go to Pfizer court. I mean, it's crazy. Right. <laughs> Look at what is the basis for all this? How can we take seriously any safeguards? When what's been exposed thus far is that you can just if the FBI wants to believe you or some people, I shouldn't say the FBI, some people at the FBI, the DOJ want to believe you. They can just mic up all your stuff, you know, your phones, your emails. And you're an American citizen. They don't have to identify a crime that you're committing. It's crazy. All right. We got a big hour three coming up, team. Uh, 844-900-2825. We're going to end the show with some. Life philosophy that I think you'll find very useful um, and very compelling. And we'll be back with that and much more. Stay with me. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. Right, we, we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, Roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. When people are insecure and anxious, they often uh, defend against their own feelings by uh, rejecting uh, others. And that often happens with minorities, it happens with ethnicities, races, religions, and it also happens with respect to women. Uh, So any of you who've read my my book about what happened know that I think that uh, misogyny and sexism was part of that campaign. Uh, old-fashioned sexism uh, and a refusal to accept the equality of women. What happened was sexism. There you get Hillary. Look, I'm willing to drop the whole Hillary conversation if we don't have to hear from Hillary anymore. But she's not dropping it, so I'm not dropping it, right? I'm not going to give Hillary the last word. The last word! Because my ears are paying the price for Hillary's presence in the public sphere. But you'll notice the same thing from her as you'll always hear, right? You'll hear from her that, you know, it's about sexism. I would note that it's a little bit galling for some of us to hear from Hillary Clinton that she lost because of sexism, in part. She said in part, to be fair to the word she used, but, you know, she lost in part because of sexism when, as we would say in the media business, or I think in any business, I just, this is the one I know the best, her unique selling proposition, so to speak, as a candidate was that she was going to be the first woman president. Right. Her campaign was I'm with her. It wasn't vote for me based on the merits. Right? It was it was she's the first woman president in the making. And that, ah, sexism. It's like, no, you know, if, if you had run a really compelling female candidate, she would win. But Hillary's just not a compelling female candidate, as we all know. She also has some other sexism-based advice to share with all of us. For women, they will bear the brunt of looking for the food, looking for the firewood, looking for uh, the place to migrate to where your crops are no longer uh, growing. They're burning up in uh, the intense heat that we're now seeing reported uh, across 
uh, North Africa into the Middle East and into India. So yes, women once again will be the primary, uh, primarily burdened with the uh, problems of climate change. Let me just reiterate here what's being said there in this recent Hillary speech. She's saying that climate change disproportionately affects women. Climate change is sexist. Can we, I want you to let that settle in a little bit there. That's right. A glo- and putting aside for a moment whether or not climate change is something to be concerned about. It's real, everybody. Climate change is real. It's just always been real. It has always been real. It is insignificant to your life and mine. It will be insignificant to our great-great-great-great-grandchildren's lives. And we are naturally decarbonizing as a human race that has been occurring naturally via market and technological forces for over a century now, for really 150 years. And I can take you through that progression one day if you want, but it is as clear as clear can be. And yet you have the fear-mongering. And you have Hillary, who is trying to capitalize on climate change as an issue of sexism. This was almost our current president, folks. You would have been treated to one Hillary speech after another. But I broke the glass ceiling, but it was unfair. You know, you don't know which way you're going with Hillary. You just know that it's going to be self-serving and dishonest. And I, I have to note that not only you got Hillary telling you, that climate change is sexist, which I don't even know how you could get make up dumber stuff than this at this point. Like they're actually getting beyond my creative capabilities here for mockery. It is getting hard to mock some of Hillary's self-aggrandizement and self-pity. She does those two things simultaneously. She's amazing and should be president. Oh, woe is me. It's so sad. I'm a woman. They wouldn't let me be president. Right. It's it's a pretty astonishing combination, but it's very real with Hillary. But I would note that, you know, her whole sexism is going to affect women thing seems more than men, which, by the way, men, men need, look, you know, without getting into the sexism debate, men need food and, and dry land and wood for fires as well. I don't know why women are going to be the ones who are disproportionately affected by this. I, I, I do not understand. Uh, anyway, there, there was also a piece over the weekend And you can't make this stuff up, folks. I mean, this is going beyond parody. This was printed in the New York Times. No children because of climate change? Some people are considering it. This is what the piece says. Add this to the list of decisions affected by climate change. Should I have children? It is not an easy time for people to uh, to feel hopeful. With the effects of global warming no longer theoretical, projections becoming more dire and governmental action lagging. And while few, if any, studies have examined how large a climate change a role climate change plays in people's childbearing decisions, it loomed large in interviews with more than a dozen people ages 18 to 43. Uh, okay. Tw- 12 people. <laughs> it's not exactly a, a uh, fantastic indicator of anything, right? I mean, do they sit down and ask 12 people uh, I mean, if you if you ask 12 people in, you know, Red Hook, Brooklyn, what they think about climate change, then you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask people from, uh, you know, the Midwest. In this case, I think they're asking people in uh, Hyderabad in India. Anyway, it d- d- doesn't really matter. I mean, you could ask people. 12 people is not enough 
is not enough to get a sense of anything. Um, but this is crazy, folks. This is craziness. I mean, when I say crazy, I don't mean like, whoa, it's crazy. I mean, actually disconnected from reality, need help, like need to seek some form of, of assistance and therapy to cope with the anxieties of day-to-day life. I promise you, folks, it, your kids and my kids are not going to be uh, having wars in some Mad Max-like dystopia where they're you know trying to knock each other off of homemade dinghies or something. I mean, that's not... That's not the way this is going to go. I assure you that is not the truth. And yet here we are. Um, The quote that they used, by the way, in this piece, when the New York Times tweeted this out, the quote was, quote, I don't want to give birth to a kid wondering if it's going to live in some kind of Mad Max dystopia, end quote. Now, this is where I get into a, a, a more serious frame of mind for a second here. I spoke to you last week about the left's uh, war on life and on the unborn as, as, as serious an issue as there exists for me. Uh, but in, in, a, in an even broader sense, the left adopts this nihilistic, uh, almost earth worship position. And it's not new, right? If you go back in the past, scientists, Thomas Malthus, for those who are wondering about one you could even look up, Malthus thought we're going to run out of food. And it was more complicated than that. He was a social scientist and wrote extensively on it. But the basic idea was human population is progressing at X. Food production progresses at Y. We are going to have starvation that affects a large uh, portion of the, po- of the global population. Well, Malthus was wrong. Totally, totally wrong. Why? Because he could not foresee technological advances. Just like the climate change, folks, as we sit here and liquefied natural gas is soon to overtake Oil and coal as the primary fossil fuels, which is much cleaner in terms of carbon burning than those two and very abundant. Uh, They can't predict technological innovation either. But there is at the root of liberalism and leftism a kind of nihilistic atheism that, you know, we need to prevent more life from happening. We need to stop. We are the last of life. And it's also a, a solipsism. It's, it's a, an obsession with the self. Our children are not going to all drown because of climate change. We should all be having as many kids as we choose to. We should go forth and multiply, my friends, as you well know. That the New York Times would print something so dumb, so insane, and that Hillary Clinton has her own version of it tells us a lot about where the Democrats are. No, 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 oh, thank God, oh my God, yes, we won, we won the Super Bowl, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. we won the Super Bowl, oh my God, oh my God, two different reactions to the the Philadelphia Eagles, which, as I understand it, uh, Philadelphia locals say Eagles, right? There's some way that they say it that I don't. Yeah, you're, Mike's a super Eagles fan. So how do they Eagles, right? They have a weird the Philly accent. They have a weird way of saying it, right? Or am I, am I wrong here? Come well, on. I say Eagles. 
You that, say Eagles. Okay, weird? you're blowing up my spot right now. I My college roommate is a Philly, born and raised, super Philly uh, fan of all sports, and he would always say that if you're on, like, maybe it's the south side of Philly or the there's, like, a Eagles. You know, it's kind of like you go to Baltimore, people sound like, People sound, but there's some people who've got a super funky Baltimore accent. You're gonna tell me there's nothing in Philadelphia? Come on! Oh, absolutely. We get you know, the yo in there. Yo, Eagles. All right, yo, Eagles. Maybe that's a little more like Rocky Balboa. Then. All right, fine. Anyway, point here being, uh, the Eagles won, as you all know, and that's great. I watched the I watched the Super Bowl in that uh, montage. We need a montage. Uh, the opening montage there. We had Kobe Bryant, who is from Philadelphia, uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He was on Instagram freaking out. And that sort of and I think he's with family, right? You could hear kids there or something. He was yeah. Yeah, with his wife and child. Yeah, wife and child. So, you know, that's exactly what we like to see. People, it's a great story. Happy for the Eagles. Happy for the city of Philadelphia. And in fact, I almost moved to Philadelphia some years ago to go to business school. It's a whole other story for another time. Uh, but the the Eagles won, and that's great. But then in the other part, you may have been like, what is this noise I'm hearing? That was one of the riots that was going on. Or maybe you could call it, if you wanted to be a little bit more generous, a ruckus celebration. But they did flip a car over. I saw that. They looted a store yelling everything is free. And I just don't understand. Uh, I don't get it. And I'm not picking on look. This is also where it is legitimate and necessary to say this is 1% or less than 1% of overall Eagles fans. The whole country outside of New England, based on the social media uh, proclivities that were shared for the Super Bowl, the whole country outside of, uh, outside of New England, and actually Montana, believe it or not. I saw on Twitter Montana was uh, overall going for the Patriots. But people were rooting for them, and I know this is a very small group. And I'm just happy for Philadelphia. It's great. They're going to have a lot of fun now. Big parade. Last night they were partying. I watched the whole thing. I thought it was a great game. Some people were complaining there wasn't enough defense. I think that a football game that ends up 9-3 after four quarters is is like the worst possible thing. So there were some amazing catches. I thought it was great. So I enjoyed watching it. I watched it with Miss Molly and my two brothers and uh, one of my brother's girlfriends. And we ate a lot of nachos which I will tell you, nachos are good for all three meals the next day. You can, in fact, reheat nachos in the microwave the next day for any meal, and they taste pretty much just as good as they did the day before, and they work for any meal. In that regard, nachos are like the bacon of the chip world. They are utility players. You can get your nachos going for anything you need. Uh, But, you know, there's the Kobe Bryant celebration versus the – Celebration we saw on the streets, and look, it's Kobe's just a, you know, he's a, a native Philadelphian, um, and so he gets very excited. Oh, the Eagles have never won a Super Bowl before, and it's a great story, and, and people should have fun with it and celebrate. And I, I love it, too. We were all like, wow, it was a great game last night. But on to the riot side of it. I'm not going to spend much time on this because, come on, it's not that not that many people that were doing this, although there were like tens of thousands taken to the streets. I did see that. But there's a difference between taking to the street and cheering and flipping cars over and stealing from a 7-Eleven or a CVS or whatever that was in the videos that people saw there. But I would just note that this is by no means limited to the Super Bowl, to Eagles fans, to 
Although I do believe there is actually a courtroom in the Eagles Stadium in the basement to adjudicate. Yes, Mike. Mike, we got a Super Eagles fan here in the studio, everybody. So they they are ready. They're ready to deal with whatever comes their way with Eagles fans. But the truth of the whole situation with rioting or the, the post-game celebrations that extend beyond what I think is, uh, is necessary and, and reasonable is that I've seen it elsewhere, too. When I was at a little tiny Amherst College, which is right down the street from the University of Massachusetts, UMass Amherst, which always, and I don't get into this stuff, this, this pettiness, but people always do the whole, you know, did you, go to, did you go to Amherst? I went to Amherst. And you say, well, if you went to Amherst College, you don't pronounce the H. But if you go to Amherst UMass or UMass Amherst, there's a different way of people saying it. I know this is all very, this is all school rivalry stuff. I, I don't go there. I don't get into it. But UMass had like fifteen or 20,000 students, so that was a pretty big school. And when the Patriots would win or when they would lose, depending on the game, sometimes they would have to bring in like riot police, basically, with tear gas to break up whatever was going on in the streets, which when you're in central Massachusetts, not in any city, you're you're bound to notice when all of a sudden there's there's like tear gas or pepper spray being deployed in large large quantities at a college gathering. So this is by no means new. This is not something that we have not seen elsewhere and before. And the Washington Post actually did an analysis of this. Quote, why do fans feel so strongly about their teams? We're social creatures. We have a need to belong, said Daniel Wan, a psychology professor at Murray State University. People often split themselves into categories based on occupation, ethnicity, gender, or other factors. That sense of belonging can often be beneficial. Uh, In studies on college students, Wan has found that fans who identify strongly with a team are often less likely to feel lonely or alienated and have higher self-esteem. But then they go, what happens in fans' brains after a win or loss? Because of that strong identification for ardent fans, the team becomes an extension of the fan, and that can have profound effects on people's psychology and even physiology. Yeah, so there's that. And then they go one more step here. So where does the urge for violence come from? Most agree the mob mentality has a lot to do with it. In study after study, psychologists have shown people often behave differently in big crowds. Yeah, so thanks, Washington Post, for telling us all what we already know. People can act like idiots in big crowds. And the, the best study of this is actually Gustave Le Bon, L-E and then B-O-N, The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. And it's, it is a a philosophical and, I guess, somewhat scientific, although it's really just based on philosophy, but it's a philosophical philosophical deep dive into the... um, It's a philosophical deep dive into why a crowd acts the way that it does and how how it functions, why it thinks in the manner that it does and everything else. So if you're looking for a version of... And this is from 140... Hundred and gosh, I forget how many years. Gustave Le Bon's nineteenth century, I think. I forget when exactly. Um, but the truth is that uh, Gustave Le Bon is the best version of this that I've ever read. So that will explain why people flip cars over and light things on fire after sporting events. 
and maybe another time we'll do a deep dive into the mob mentality. But congrats to the congrats to the Eagles. I am very happy for them. First time ever, right? First time they've ever won. Which it's interesting because they've been a good franchise for a long time. I remember you know Eagles have been competitors. You know, they've done well as a by family Giants fan. So I, I was forced to be. There was no question. It was like you're going to be raised Roman Catholic. You're also going to be a Giants fan. Um, the Eagles have a certain, you know, the other side feeling for me. But I'm very happy for them nonetheless. I'm very happy the Eagles came away with the the W, and it was a great game. Uh, the worst part of the whole thing was the halftime show. I don't care what anybody says. That guy, Justin Timberlake, is talented, but his music does not match his overall talent. You know, I'm glad that there's somebody that can provide the soundtrack for exotic dancers for the foreseeable future. But that's about the most you can expect from Timberlake's music, in my opinion. And with that, we will go into uh, some other thoughts on the other side of the break. Stay with The next segment after this one is going to be a little sad, but also inspiring and I think really worthwhile. I'll need you to stay with me until the end of the show to, to get into it. And I will also tell you that it won't be an easy one for me to do. It's, it's nothing about me. It's stories and, and advice from uh, some others. But it really stuck with me. And I've read through it. It's not long. I've read through it a number of times. And I think there's tremendous wisdom in it. And uh, I may get a little choked up during it, so I just would uh, advise that that may happen. I am uh, sometimes a bit, I don't know, uh, sentimental or uh, dare I even say I am sensitive to certain things, and I think you'll understand why in the next segment. Like I said, nothing. To, this has nothing to do with me or, or my life. Uh, it's it's the lives of others that I can draw some real wisdom from. And I think it's a powerful segment. So I, I hope you will stay through for it. And I won't get into more detail than that. But before that, I wanted to have a little bit of fun with you, which is why I figured we could uh, address a question that feels very apropos for the Freedom Hunt, just out of curiosity I, I really I mean, it wasn't trolling because I'm not trying to antagonize anyone but I was I was chumming the waters with this one a little bit I on Sunday during the uh, I think it was during the Super Bowl actually I asked or no, it was right before the Super Bowl I asked the following question on Twitter can a movie be placed in the action genre if it takes place in a pre-gunpowder era now this is not to say that a movie or the question is not can a movie have or or not have action if it is pre-gunpowder but i just meant in terms of the genre which is something that's come up on this show for example action is it's a kind of arbitrary genre but you know you know it when you see it and those of you like me who spent way too much of your childhood literally wandering around movie rental stores. It was great, man. I used to just wander around and check out all the different you know, empty boxes of VHS tapes and see what was there. I used to love it. It was a great thing. My mom would let me do it while she was getting 
groceries, you know, my older brother and I could go wander into the little video store next door. Talk about a business that doesn't really exist anymore. There are video rental stores everywhere when I was a early teenager, and then Blockbuster kind of took over. Uh, but action was a genre. What I say to people, though, is Westerns can have a lot of action, but Westerns are their own genre. So all those Clint Eastwood movies that people call in during Action Movie Quote Friday and say, hey, and they, they give me a quote from it, I don't think that's really action. I think it's a Western. It can have action in it, but that's not the same as falling in the genre of action. And with pre-gunpowder, I, I know that seems like a somewhat arbitrary separation, but in the pre-gunpowder era, I think you could make a case that some of the great movies are historical epics or are historical drama you know, but but then there's some crossover into other into other genres too. And I, I I knew I asked this question, and from the team and from others, I was gonna get I was gonna get a bit of a pile on, and I did, <laughs> I did. So the question is, can a movie be placed in the action genre if it takes place in a pre-gunpowder era? And a lot of you're like, yes, it can, Buck, uh, and that is what came across here. The big, the big ones that I have to agree are the ones that, generally speaking, get me thinking, yeah, I, those are action movies. They're not really historical epics. Are movies like uh, Gladiator and Braveheart. Braveheart is probably, all in, my favorite movie of all time. And I've mentioned before that Braveheart was the name, the nickname, not of William Wallace, who for some one day I'll do a whole show on the real William Wallace not a whole show but a, a segment uh, probably a shield tie actually on the on the real William Wallace oh and that's where I also would note sorry there's no shield tie today we took a week off to do a little additional research uh, it'll be up and running next week and so your next shield tie installment will be next Monday uh, the the research team of Buck needed to take a couple of days off and actually watch the Super Bowl with Miss Molly and his brothers and not have his headphones on while he's audio editing a history podcast. But back to this question about action, I usually think of Gladiator and uh, and Braveheart when I think of can you have an action movie that is pre-gunpowder, so there's no guns, no firing of any weapons that aren't you know, bows and arrows, crossbows. And a lot of you pointed out right away, hold on a second, what is 300 if not an action movie. And I, I think you got it on that one. I, I don't think you can make a case that 300 is anything other than an action movie. Uh, I, I do see here on Twitter that Hector wrote The 13th Warrior, which I just, that really, I found that fascinating because it's a it was a disaster at the box office. It has Antonio Banderas, but it's based on the Michael Crichton Eaters of the Dead and it has an interesting hist kind of history-based plot. It's a guy from the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad makes his way to Viking territory, and there are uh, there's kind of a, a pre, I don't know what you say, a pre-Bronze Age people that essentially eat people. They're cannibals up there. It's kind of an interesting out-there plot, but that movie did terribly at the box office. I actually owned it. On DVD, I think it's because it was one of those DVDs when I was in college you could buy for like five bucks or something in the in the store in one of those bins. So I actually owned it in college and watched it a fair amount.
but your your answers here, I, I, I cannot begin to uh, push back against this. You guys are all correct. When you add in Braveheart, Gladiator, 300, and, and many others that aren't even coming to mind right away, uh, the answer is that, yes, in fact, you, you can. The team, Team Buck established it beyond any dispute. You can have an action movie without the usage of any gunpowder weapons. So the question was answered, and thank you very much for that. Um, I have some wisdom to share with you, not from me, from, well, from some kids, actually, and a doctor who's passing it along. I think you'll really find this uh, worth your time, so stay with me through the break. Hey, team, to close out the show today, I have something a little different in mind than roll call. And it came to me in one of those moments over the weekend where I realized I was looking at my phone and paying attention to the uh, political disputes going on in the aftermath of the Trump memo and not focusing as much on Miss Molly and also later in the weekend for Super Bowl Sunday, uh, time I was spending with my two brothers. I was all caught up in the back and forth of the memo and not focused on my life for a few moments. And uh, it reminded me of this thread that I saw uh, on Twitter. So I'm now going to use social media as a way of telling us all not to spend too much time on social media. But I do think that the message contained within is, uh, is very powerful. It's also quite a bit sad uh, when you think about it, but I, it, well, it, it stuck with me. Very few things in this current era of uh, constant news stimulation and engagement, very few things that are not bombshell stories tend to stick with me for a few days, and uh, this, is, this is one of them. So he, here is the story, um, and let me just first say this is about this is about uh, palliative care for uh, pediatric, pediatric patients. Uh, so these are children who have terminal diseases. Palliative, in fact, comes from the Latin palliare, which is to cloak or to hide, because palliative care is about dealing with the pain and the minimizing the suffering. Essentially, you make someone as comfortable as you can for as long as you can but there is really no hope or effort to treat the underlying disease. So you can imagine the moment you're talking about terminal pediatric uh, palliative care. Uh, this, is, this is tough stuff, but there's a lot of wisdom that can come from the thoughts of, of children who have been faced with so much so early on in life. And this was put together by a doctor, uh, Alastair McElpine is his name, and he put this together on Twitter. He is himself a, a pediatrician, so he treats uh, children who have terminal illnesses. And here's what he wrote. For an assignment, I asked some of my terminal pediatric palliative care patients what they had enjoyed in life and what gave it meaning. Kids can be so wise, you know. Here are some of the responses. First, none 
said they wished they'd watched more TV. None said that they should have spent more time on Facebook. None said that they enjoyed fighting with others, and none enjoyed the hospital. Many of them mentioned their pets. Quote, I love Rufus. His funny bark makes me laugh. I love when Ginny snuggles up to me at night and purrs. I was happiest riding Jake on the beach. Many mentioned their parents, often expressing worry or concern. Hope Mom will be okay. She seems sad. Dad mustn't worry. He'll see me again soon. God will take care of my mom and dad when I'm gone. All of the pediatric palliative care patients uh, said they loved ice cream, which I can totally relate to. I just bought some ice cream myself yesterday. Miss Molly even called me out. She said, you're getting two pints of ice cream for the house? I said, yes, indeed I am. But all of these kids loved ice cream, and I totally understand. I totally agree. Back to what they had to say here. All of them loved books or being told stories, especially by their parents. Harry Potter made me feel brave. I love stories in space. I want to be a great detective. Excuse me. A great detective like Sherlock Holmes when I'm better. Mm. The doctor writes here, Folks, read to your kids. They love it. The doctor is right. Stories are profound. Stories are really important. Whether they are uh, fictional or true, uh, they allow us to put our own lives into context and to inspire us. And when you really think about it, religion, uh, for most of you listening, Christianity, is storytelling. It is based on stories. The Bible is a book of stories. That's in addition to someone who will probably say now, Buck, the Bible is uh, universal and endless truth, but it, it is still storytelling. You are being told stories. So they can clearly have a tremendous impact on our lives. And I, I will always remember my parents uh, coming home from a meeting with the uh, headmaster of Regis High School, where I went to school, which was a really exceptional place. Um, and the headmaster, who was a lifelong educator and a Jesuit, was a big proponent of, whenever possible, eat dinner with your children. Do not have the TV on. That's not to say don't watch the Super Bowl with your kids and eat wings once a year. It's just to say, whenever possible, dinner as a family without the television or any distractions on. Talk to each other and be with each other. He thought, this Jesuit educator, that that had a profound impact on their academic ability, their ability to uh, socialize, particularly with adults. And so it was um, not just a question of what's important in life, but also what is helpful in life. And reading to your kids, reading stories. Of all the teachers that I had growing up, I have to say, I think that the the one teacher who made a point, his name was uh, Bill Ryan. He was my fourth grade homeroom teacher. Uh, he he read to us from The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. And 
it's funny because we did a lot of other stuff that year. I remember him reading to us. He would just say, okay, everybody, you know, he would, he would turn the light down just a little bit because the light, the sun was always blasting into the classroom. So he would uh, just give us a little bit of, of quiet time and everybody would just sit with their hands on the desk or you could even put your head down on your hands on the desk if you wanted to and he would read to the class. It was one of the most powerful things that any teacher I ever had did. But back to the wisdom of Dr. Alastair McElpine, or I should say the wisdom of the, the uh, terminal palliative patients in his care. So they all love being told stories. Here's what else they said. Quote, many wish they had spent less time worrying about what others thought of them and valued people who just treated them normally. My real friends didn't, excuse me, um, my real friends didn't care when my hair fell out. Or, hmm. Jane came to visit after the surgery and didn't even notice the scar. Many of them uh, loved swimming and the beach. I made big sand castles. Being in the sea with the waves was so exciting, my eyes didn't even hurt. Almost all of them valued kindness above most other virtues. My granny is so kind to me. She always, she always makes me smile. Johnny gave me half his sandwich when I didn't eat mine. That was nice. I like it when the kind nurse is here. She's gentle and it doesn't hurt as much. Almost all of them loved people who made them laugh. That magician is so silly. His pants fell down and I couldn't stop laughing. My daddy pulls funny faces, which I just love. <laughs> the boy in the next bed farted. And the doc writes here, laughter relieves pain. Also, kids love their toys and their superheroes. My Princess Sophia doll is my favorite. I love Batman, the doc writes. All the boys love Batman. And I love cuddling with my teddy. Finally, they all valued... Uh, they all valued time with their family. Nothing was more important. Mom and Dad are the best. My sister always hugs me tight. No one loves me like mommy loves me. And Dr. McOpine then writes, Take home message. Be kind. Read more books. Spend time with your family. Crack jokes. Go to the beach. Hug your dog. Tell that special person you love them. These are the things these kids wish they could have done more. The rest is details. Oh, Eat more ice cream, too. Dr. Alastair McElpine. Well, I'll say this. Uh, the doc is right. These kids are right. Shields high.